A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this Malava Malka episode has been generously sponsored by David Friedlander of the Upper West Side in honor of the first yard site of his grandmother, Edith Fuchs, Yenta Basfredel, a Hungarian Holocaust survivor who flourished and built a beautiful family and life in Sydney, Australia. So... We're going to talk a, a little bit tonight about the uh, Hungarian yeshiva world and uh, specifically the yeshiva of, of what's called Yeshivas Maram Brisk or Mordechai Brisk in the town of Toshnad in Hungary. But before I get to that, I wanted to um, just refer back to our recent uh, episode on the American South. Uh, first of all, I neglected to thank a a dedicated, loyal, and very knowledgeable listener who assisted uh, with the information about the Memphis segment of that episode, and he also insisted that I thank him without mentioning his name. But uh, i got to give credit where credit is due, so thank you for providing, uh, helping out with that information and background. I also forgot to mention a prominent rabbi who served in Charleston, uh, the Jewish community in Charleston in the 1950s, a fellow by the name of Reb Nochum Rabinovich, who passed away just recently, um, and he was a rabbi in the 1950s for about a decade in Charleston, didn't much for Jewish life there at the time, was very prominent, and he was a very prominent rabbi in general. He was a, a rabbi in Toronto and London, and later on, for many, many years, decades, he was a Rosh Hashiva and a Paisik in Israel in Mala Dumim, he was a very original thinker, very independent thinker, and um, a very special man. He just uh, passed away recently. I um, also want to read one letter that I got from listener feedback about Memphis um, from that same episode. And I'm going to quote excerpts from this letter. So here it goes. Um, just wanted to correct a few points. Number one, Rabbi Meir Belsky came in 1962 to replace Rabbi Niowitz as principal of the day school. He never taught sixth grade there. There was no high school at that time. Rabbi Belsky added on a grade each year for four years and then broke off the high school as the yeshiva of the South. 
It was the first Jewish high school south of the Mason-Dixon line. Two, Rabbi Belsky, who was a Talmud of Rav Huttner, brought down the first seed program around 1964. Three, Rav Huttner came to Memphis for the first time in 1976. He had sent Rabbi Walmark, but Rabbi Belsky came through Tyra Masaira, where he had worked for several years, starting Torah day schools across the country. Number four, the yeshiva in Memphis never closed. Closed. There is still an Orthodox high school there today. That's uh, the end of that letter, so that's uh, good information to add about Memphis. Um, so getting to the Hungarian yeshiva world and what I want to bring us into the world of the Hungarian yeshivas. In the last Malava Malka episode, we discussed the Vada yeshivas in, in uh, Poland-Lithuania during the interwar period. So it actually is a good uh, connection because there's something that's, you know, sometimes frustrating and, and also annoying about um, when, when analyzing Jewish life in the pre-war um, era uh, is that Jews lived in so many countries before the war. So it's hard to get a full picture and to get overall data and statistics because there's so many different places where Jews lived. Today, in today's world, Believe it or not, 85% of the Jewish people live in two countries, the United States and Israel. But uh, before the war, they were scattered all over. Um, so if we talk about, some, there's a big misconception, which I want to devote a few minutes, uh, several minute long introduction to to get the proper context, is there's a, a bit of a misconception when we discuss the, the yeshiva world in the pre-war era, or uh, the interwar period, and um, and the numbers involved. Very often there's a a number quoted, and it's it's almost cliche that there was about 5,000 yeshiva students in the entire yeshiva world in the pre-war, and there's more yeshiva students learning in the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim today than there was in the entire yeshiva world in the pre-war, and that is to show the growth of the Torah world, which I'm not denying, and of course there was tremendous numerical growth, and that's perhaps for another topic, and someone who's an expert in uh, contemporary uh, numbers can talk about. But I just want to clarify a few points about the numbers and the the geographical spread of the pre-war yeshiva rule. That number, 5,000, which is not an exact number, obviously, is referring to a very specific place of the pre-war era. We're talking about the yeshiva's the Lithuanian-style yeshivas in Poland, what I mentioned last week, the Kersi uh, region in Poland where the Lithuanian yeshivas were, and these yeshivas that were under the jurisdiction of the Vadha yeshivas, that was approximately 5,000. But the number is very skewed because that's a very, very limited in scope. There was, uh, first of all, within that same area, there were other yeshivas that were not under the Vada yeshivas, uh, such as a lot of the yeshivas of the Navardic network, because there was only there was four, perhaps five main yeshivas of Navardic, which is for another topic, and Zrich and, and Dvinsk and, and Warsaw and, and Pinsk, Bialystok, whatever. And the, most of the other smaller branches were not registered, were not counted. So you're talking about tens of branches of Navardic that were not counted in the numbers. There was also yeshivas in independent Lithuania. Litvish yeshivas that were not under the Vada yeshivas, like uh, Panovich and Kelm and Slabatka and Tels, Vilkomir, 
in other places, a shadava, and, and that were not counted as part of the Vari Yeshivas, as additional Yeshivas. Then, of course, we move on past Lithuania, outside in other areas. You had, of course, the major network of Yeshivas, the Taimchei Tamimim of Lubavitch, of Chabad, that was all over. A lot of yeshivas, many, many students. And then you move into Poland. There were Gary yeshivas. There was the Masifta of Warsaw and other places. There was the Radomsk yeshiva network called Kesser Taira that had close to 3,000 yeshiva students. There was the Eitz Chaim yeshiva network of the Baba Verebbe, the Kedusha Sian. There was, of course, yeshivas Chachmei Lublin. There were Shtiblach, of, which were unofficial yeshivas across Poland and Galicia. Um, there were yeshivas in Volin, in areas of Poland and Ukraine. Um, and then, of course, we come to Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, the huge yeshiva world of Hungary, which included Romania and Slovakia, the Hungarian yeshiva world, which was the students and the students of the students of the Chassam Seifer, and not only the Chassam Seifer, because there were Hasidish yeshivas in Hungary, there were the Ashkenaz Oberland yeshivas in Hungary, a huge thousands of yeshiva students and Literally tens, if not uh, if not more, uh, uh, yeshivas across that area. And then, even if we go beyond that, outside of Eastern Europe, um, beyond the, the the borders of Eastern Europe, where most of the yeshivas were, obviously, um, but there were some yeshivas in Germany, in Berlin, and in other places. There was even a yeshiva or two in Belgium. There were a couple of yeshivas in England. There were the yeshivas of the New World. There were already. In the interwar period, there were a few yeshivas in the United States and also in Israel. Not many, but uh, a couple, uh, a handful of yeshivas in both those countries. And then we talk about what's, of course, what's uh, generally overlooked and, uh, and shouldn't be the yeshivas of the Sephardic world, which again, most of these yeshivas were not exactly, you know, to say the least, were not on the Valazhin yeshiva model. But the fact that they weren't on the Valazhin yeshiva model doesn't make them not yeshivas. And uh, there were yeshivas, there were places that were educational institutions that communities set up for their youth to study and grow great in, in Torah and become rabbis and whatever yeshivas were for. And they existed everywhere. So the yeshivas of the Sephardic world, there's a great yeshivas in Saloniki, in Baghdad, in Iraq, there are many yeshivas in Morocco, in Tunisia, in other countries in the Mediterranean Basin and the Middle East, and more, and many more, in Egypt, other places. And most of these yeshivas um, flourished and had their ups and downs, depending on a lot of external factors and sometimes internal factors. And therefore, the numbers are much, much greater than we tend to think. By the way, in those days, the yeshivas were almost exclusively for single uh, students, very, very uncommon that would be married students, which again changes the numbers, because today when we talk about the yeshiva world, we're obviously including huge numbers of married, but that's getting into a different topic, and I don't want to, I want to get back to Hungary. So just, that's to give the overall context of what we refer to the yeshiva world, what are we talking about, who are we talking about, what exactly are the numbers, and that brings us into this um, world of the Hungarian yeshiva world, uh, a, a tremendous world uh uh, like I said, both Hasidic and and the Oberland Hasam Seifer style, which was primarily that's what the Hungarian yeshivas were about, but not only. Like I, uh, you know, the Satmar Rav, for instance, Rielish Teitelbaum, when he was the Rav in Satmar, he was the Rav in Satmar. He was a Hasidic Rebbe in Satmar, but he was also a Rosh Hashiva, and he was very. That was a very 
important and one of the primary positions that he held was very dear to him. He gave shiurim in the yeshiva, and his yeshiva was large and quite prominent. It was uh, one of the larger yeshivas in, in that area. Um, but most of the yeshivas, like I said, were from the Chassam Seifer and Preshburg, and that spread across the whole area. Most of them were small. Uh, some of them were big, which we're going to get to the biggest one, the yeshiva of Maram Brisk in Toshnad. And, uh, but most of them were small. They had very strange fundraising methods. They would actually send out the yeshiva students themselves. It was actually kind of like a tragic situation, the funding of these yeshivas. Most of the uh, uh, Russia yeshiva, almost all basically, in Hungary, in Hungary in this context, in the interwar period, includes um, Romania and Slovakia as well. Most, almost all of them were the rabbi of the town the communal rabbi, and the communal rabbi would open the yeshiva. Depending on what type of funding he was able to get, it was either a very, very small yeshiva, as in most instances, a few, you know, 10, 20, 30 students. Uh, and, uh, and in some cases, they grew uh, quite large. Sometimes in the cases of the Hasidic rabbis, it was the rabbi of the town, who was also a Hasidic rabbi, who was also a yeshiva. And they wore three hats. Uh, for instance, in, in uh, like I said, the Satmarav, but one of the Oberland yeshivas that became quite prominent and famous was the Nitri yeshiva, Shmuel Ungar, and whose son-in-law was Rebbechalber Weissman, who's, who's famous. Um, and then, of course, we have to clarify about the borders. Before World War I, this whole area is Austro-Hungarian Empire of the Habsburgs, and uh, that includes the area of Transylvania, where Toshnad is. But after World War I, it becomes a bunch of different countries. There's Hungary, there's Romania. Romania had large borders in the interwar period where the whole entire Transylvania was during the interwar period, including Satmar, Kleisenberg, like I said, with this uh, Toshnad also, and then Slovakia also. It was, uh, was a different country. It was an independent country. Today, a lot of that area is also in the Ukraine to confuse things even more. But um, Transylvania itself, that whole district, was Romania during the interwar period. And then uh, when the war begins, it was called the Vienna Awards, um, um, the whole, that, that area reverted back to Hungary. So actually during the Holocaust, it was part of Hungary, which had you know, big ramifications for that area as well. So who was this Maharam Brisk? So Mordechai Brisk, who was the main, main personality who we're going to discuss today in the context of this yeshiva, he was the life of the whole place. So his, um, he was a Hungarian rav and Paisik and, uh, you know, a great Torah scholar. His maternal grandfather was actually the rabbi, uh, not the rebbe. He was the rabbi, the community rabbi of Kerestir, Rabbi Menachem Gershon Greenwald. You have to start off, if it's somehow connected to Hungary, then we have to connect it to Kerestir. Otherwise, you know, why would anyone bother listening to this episode? It's got to connect there. So you have your connection. Rabbi Nachum Gershon Greenwald was the rabbi in Karastir, and his grandson was Ramordechai Brisk. So this Ramordechai Brisk grew up, uh, grew up uh, and he studied in, in the prominent yeshiva, a prominent uh, town in Hungary called Mad. And it's actually a big, beautiful old shul that we visit when we go there on the, on the trips. And um, he studied under, again, one of the greatest uh, rabbis in Russia, Yeshiva in Hungary at the time, or Mordechai Yehudalei Winkler, who was a, was a Preshburg Talmud. He was a Talmud of the Ksav Seifer, the Ksav Seifer's son in, in Preshburg, and that was the style of Yeshiva that he had in Mad. 
and he, this Rav Mordechai Yudalei Winkler was actually the father-in-law of Rav Svidushinsky, who's from that same uh, same style in the Hungarian rabbinate, and he later became the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim and the Eide Haredes. Um, so Mordechai Yudalei Winkler is also quite well known because of his farm, the Levushe Mordechai. Um, in any event, so this Rav Mordechai Brisk eventually marries uh, a girl from Margita, another town the, in Yiddish, the Jews called it Margareten, which is uh, you know a family name of today, and he became a dayan there and had a small yeshiva. But that was only the small beginning. In 1919, he becomes the rav in Toshnad, and he was one of the most famous um, and prominent rabbis and paiskim of his entire generation. He wrote a multi-volume uh, tshuva sefer uh, called Maharam Brisk, and he was well known throughout Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, and even up to Galicia. Uh, he corresponded with rabbis in Lvov and other places. Uh, now, Toshna was the, the main town, but the rabbi of the town was responsible for the religious well-being of the villages in the entire district. And he invested great efforts in improving religious infrastructure, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, which needed a lot of uh, strengthening in those days. The religion was kind of on its way out in that area of Hungary and Romania. And there was a Hasidic presence, and 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 also a non-Hasidic Ashkenaz, uh, like like Oberlan type of a presence, like Ramorchei Brisk. He was not Hasidic. Um, he was he was responsible for religious life. He focused primarily on four projects in his capacity as rabbi: um, educational institutions, as we'll see about his yeshiva, but also in primary education, in shaychtim and kosher butchers, which was actually a common practice of Hungarian rabbis from the Hassam Seifer school, and he invested in mikvahs and also in social organizations like Chesed and Staka-related uh, initiatives. And uh, he was actually famous as a Dayan as well, and he was uh, usually the candidate of choice to judge high-profile um, disputes in Transylvania during the interwar period, such as in Kleisenberg and Satmer, of the rabbinate, um, which were quite famous disputes at the time, and he was called in to uh, to judge and to uh, resolve these uh, disputes. And he was very active in rabbinic life at the national level. In 1942, actually, at the peak of World War II and the Holocaust, while Polish Jewry is being exterminated, so Hungarian uh, Hungary was still under, uh, and, and by now uh, Transylvania had reverted back to Hungary, as I mentioned, and uh, Hungary was still under relative peace, and he was offered the prestigious post, probably the most prestigious post in that part of Europe, as the chief rabbi of Budapest. And he he said to them, well, if you would support a yeshiva, then I'll come, because I can't be in the rabbinate without having a yeshiva. And they said, well, the future is uncertain. We, we live at a very challenging time in the you know fascist government in Hungary, and we can't commit financially and, 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 uh, to, to, to have a yeshiva. And so they, they weren't able to commit. So he said, no yeshiva, no rabbinate, and, I, and I'm staying in Toshnat. So he, had he taken it, it might have actually saved his life subsequently, uh, because um, it was safer in Budapest. It was the last place the deportations went from, and a lot of, there were a lot of, relatively a lot of survivors from Budapest, but he, but he, uh, he turned it down. So he essentially, though he didn't know it at the time, he essentially gave his life to be able to have and sustain a, a yeshiva. So he opens the yeshiva when he became the rabbi, as was the custom of most Hungarian rabbis at the time. And it grew to over 300 students. It was the largest yeshiva in Hungary 
Romania and that whole area. It was one of the largest yeshivas in the world. It rivaled in numbers the Mir or Yeshivas Chachmi Lublin, which were, you know, the largest yeshivas at the time. It was almost that size. You're talking about a massive, very prominent yeshiva. Most of the Hungarian yeshivas were quite small and not well funded. Again, the Satmarov was the exception, but it was not as big as this yeshiva either. There was a fellow by the name of, of, of Fuchs, Dr. Avram Fuchs, who was a very important researcher who became very famous later on in life for his work on Ermachalber Weissmandel. But no less important was his works on the Hungarian yeshiva world. He wrote an amazing, comprehensive, and thick book on the entire Hungarian yeshiva world. And because he grew up in Toshnan and was a student of the Maharam Brisk, and he learned in that yeshiva, he devoted an entire book to him, which is also an excellent book, and it provides tremendous insight uh, into him as a person, or Mordechai Brisk, and, uh, and, his, and the yeshiva there in Toshnan. And uh, despite all his rabbinical uh, responsibilities, he was very deeply involved in the yeshiva on a daily basis. He even managed the yeshiva at an administrative level. He made a pioneering attempt at having a dining room affiliated with the yeshiva and even a partial dormitory, which was, again, revolutionary at the time, not just in Hungary, but in the entire yeshiva world. He wasn't the first one, but he was one of the early ones who tried to institute that uh, in his yeshiva. Now, the learning style of the yeshivas in the yeshiva of Maram Brisk was very similar to most other Hungarian yeshivas at the time. And it was very different than uh, what's known in its Lithuanian yeshiva counterpart. So it's worth elaborating uh, on the daily schedule and the curriculum in the yeshiva in some detail. So first, first of all, he insisted that davening shachros in the yeshiva, he was very particular about it, that it's part of the yeshiva, part of the daily schedule, which actually was similar to at least some of the yeshivas in Lithuania. However, that was followed by a halacha class. And then the morning was, was, the morning was devoted to what was called a shir iyun, an in-depth shir for the advanced students. It was one to two hours long, and they covered a sugya in-depth over several weeks. And there was an exam, a test, at the end of each sugya, over, over six weeks or so. They would have a test. That was, again, some of the differences are not that big, but some of them are quite unique. Um, and then, in the afternoon, so Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, the afternoon was called the Sheer Pashat, and they would study two to three blot Gemara, two or three pages of Gemara, the advanced, with, with basic commentaries, with basic Mepharshim, the advanced students again would cover additional commentaries, and then the Shear on that was close to three hours. That was Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, that was really Monday and Tuesday, we'll get to Sunday soon. Wednesday, Thursday was to review, was Chazara, which was followed by a weekly test. You got exam, examination on everything, everything, all the material covered that week. Towards the end of every Zman was a long review period, a few weeks long, followed by a test on all the material covered the entire Zman. Now, Thursday evening through Shabbos was devoted to the study of the weekly Parsha with Rashi, and as well as Hilchas Shabbos. They studied Hilchas Shabbos in depth, the halacha, and the shir, there was a shir every Friday on Hilchas Shabbos. And then Moitzi Shabbos was a weekly test on the Parsha with Rashi, together with the Hilchas Shabbos that were covered that, e- that weekend. On Sundays, there was no regular Shir Pashat in the Gemara, but rather they learned, they studied Hilchas Yeridea, Isra Heter, Halacha, with a Shir. And then a test at the end of each Zman, and all the Halacha covered during that Zman. 
halacha from Arachayim, from Shabbos, from Yeradeya. And he was, Ramorche Brisk was a fatherly figure to his students. They loved him. He was very beloved. Um, he, he, they would sometimes, so much did they like being with him, sometimes they would stay in the yeshiva for Pesach and attend his Seder. He was very devoted if a student would fall ill, he would care for him, he would take care of him, literally be by his bedside and make sure he got taken care of. Um, like many Hungarian yeshivas, the community was much more involved than in, than again, like yeshivas were in Lithuania. In Poland, um, the community would participate with yeshiva events, like the opening shir of every zman. So very often the prestigious members of the community would be in attendance. Um, it was a top yeshiva in Transylvania, a top yeshiva in Hungary. Now, if it's a top yeshiva, when we think of today or then, a top yeshiva, top yeshiva means brisk. Now, it's a Hungarian yeshiva, so it's not brisk. Brisk is in Lithuania. So it has to have some sort of connection to Brisk. So the Rosh Yeshiva's name was Brisk, Reb Mordechai Brisk. That was simply his last name. So you have some sort of connection. Now at the Holocaust, the beginning of the war, so already many uh, uh, were drafted in Hungary to the dreaded and infamous Hungarian army labor brigades, which is why there were very few able-bodied males around when the Nazis invaded Hungary, and then they started sending the deportations to Auschwitz, so most able-bodied Jewish males were not around. They mostly took women, children, and elderly and sick. And that's why almost all of them were sent, when they got to arrive at Auschwitz, straight to the gas chambers. The able-bodied males were already drafted at the beginning of the war to the labor brigades, which most of them returned from, but broken, injured, they suffered, and many of them did not return from at all. Now, this affected the yeshiva because many were drafted into the labor brigades. It also affected his rabbinate because some people did not return from the labor brigades and they started getting halachic questions about aguna, agunas. And again, he he answered these questions, he dealt with the aguna questions, and he published these chuvas and chuvas maram brisk during the war. Now, most times when we discuss the very famous Aguna Holocaust questions, they're dealt with and for sure published after the war, in the immediate post-war. So you're talking about Ramorche Brisk actually is the pioneer. He pioneered the discussion and he published it already during the war. So you already have the basis of it and, and definitely he's someone who's who's uh, in the context of those halachic wartime questions, he was, you know, at the forefront, and he already has these published uh, during the war itself. Um, we mentioned that he turns down the position in Budapest. He was actually, during the war, he was severely beaten when a draft dodger was caught on the yeshiva premises. Now, when the Nazis invade in 1944, everything comes to an end, and this is already the familiar story of Hungarian Jewry. They're in the ghetto for a few, week, a few weeks during the spring, of 1944, and his beard is forcibly shaven, and he risks his life to put on tefillin every day under a blanket in this ghetto, and he would actually sing with the people around him, Chamoel al Masecha, from the, from the uh, davening of uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And then, of course, when the dep- great deportations of Hungarian Jewry to Auschwitz begins in the summer of 1944, when in less than two months, 437,000 Hungarian Jews are sent and deported to Auschwitz. He's one of those sent. He's killed upon arrival. He was already 58 years old at the time. He wasn't young anymore. Uh, most of his family was killed along with him. Most of his community, most of his students during that time. There was one son who survived, Rebaran Svi. He came to Israel in 1950 and he founded Yeshivas Maharam Brisk in Netanya. And as far as I know, it still exists and is actually 
still run by his descendants. So this is a little bit about Maram Brisk and the yeshiva that he had. And um, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips, including virtual tours. You can subscribe to our podcast on Podbean, Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean, and uh, follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.